The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. What a rotten stinker of a week it's been. I had the miserable privilege of hosting the last Rush Limbaugh show of Rush's lifetime. And then I spent the rest of the week paying tribute to him with Tucker, with Fox and Friends, with Sebastian Gorka, with a Fox News documentary crew, and with his millions of listeners. And I'll be back on Monday's Rush Limbaugh show with a very special guest, the love of Rush's life, Catherine, who will be joining me to take your calls on Friday's show, all those incredible musical parodies going back three decades became a leitmotif of the broadcast, and it reminded me that we used to do a bit of that right here. February 2021. From my 12 months to flatten the curve to yours. It's your semi-lockdown without end. Everybody was kung flu fighting. Those stats climbed fast as lightning. In fact, it was a little bit frightening. Chat comes of expert timing. There were funky China men from funky Wuhan town. They were chopping bats up, they were chowing them down. It's an ancient Chinese dish, and everybody says delish. Chairman Z will book your flight, you'll be in Italy tonight. And everybody starts Kung Flu dying. Those Chacoms can't stop lying. Fake test kits they're supplying The whole world they're Shanghaiing There was funky Dr. Ted Truss from the funky WHO He said, she is the big boss, I gotta blow He made his bow and then he said, hey folks there ain't no human spread So go hug a China man when you're out strolling in Milan So everybody is Flu spreading It's at your sister's wedding It's in Prince Charles's bedding And ISIS next beheading You're under house arrest Doc Fauci says it's best that you don't leave the nest He'll keep you all abreast When they stop Kung Flu fighting Achoo, 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 achoo Okay, okay, that's enough of that. With all the guest hosting on TV and radio, I've done a ton of politics this week, as and as, it's all out there. So we're going to have some non-politics, if you like disco, uh, and if you like classical music, I'll say no more on that. 
Uh, and on the political front, with all the guest hosting in America, I feel we've rather neglected some of our other key markets, such as the UK, Canada, Oz. So what little politics we have for you this weekend uh, is playing catch-up. So Good evening, all. It's your Brit Wanker Copper of the Day. Well, you know, it's almost a year since we introduced our Brit Wanker Copper feature, and it's incredible to me that nothing has changed. The bit I was going to use this week was some poor bloke eating a curly whirly or a star bar or some such outside the Westgate Centre, which I think is in Leeds, but there may be one in Oxford too. doesn't really matter because wherever you are, the same thing happens as it did to this fella with his curly whirly. Fifteen coppers descend on him and then more arrive. Uh, to crack down this existential threat to the United Kingdom. And I honestly have absolutely nothing to say on that. I never thought I'd say this, but I'm wankered out. Britain has left the European Union, but like the nations it has left behind, it has agreed to live in a permanent Covid limbo, an eternal Narnia, where it's always winter, never Christmas. And while much, most of the West is stuck in this Chicom stasis, on other fronts, things seem to be uh, accelerating, moving very fast. The US election resulted in the total merger of big government and big social, the woke billionaires who determine what you're allowed to say about the COVID, Islam, transgender issues, climate change, and even the election itself. What happens if a government does not find itself in complete sync with big social. Well, we're seeing that in Australia right now, where for once a Western ministry uh, realised that these wokesters became all-powerful, planet-bestriding billionaires through, for the most part, wholesale copyright theft. And when the government in Canberra attempted to do something about that, Zuckerberg and Facebook reacted by, in effect, trying to cancel an entire country. That's basically what's going on uh, in Australia right now. Australia had the impertinence to push back against Zuckerberg, so Zuckerberg has decided to cancel Australia. We'll see how that works. As I said, I felt um, I've been neglecting Her Majesty's Dominion somewhat through all this guest hosting, Uh, So I've called in our Deputy Senior Assistant Vice President of Canadian Affairs. I hope I got his job title right. Uh, The prevailing party in Lawton versus Canada, a landmark lawsuit in which Lawton kicked Canada's butt clear across the courtroom. Uh, I've called in Mr. Lawton for a brand new feature. The Mark Stein Show presents Andrew Lawton's Canadian Content. Okay, Andrew, it's all yours with a side of poutine. Thanks, Mark. The big story this week should be that Canada is bringing up the rear in the COVID vaccine race among developed nations. Well, heck, even some non-developed ones. Canada is 40th in the world for percentage of its citizens vaccinated. 
behind Bangladesh, Indonesia, and the Seychelles, where, frankly, I'd rather be right now. But Justin Trudeau decided the real scourge was guns. Yeah, the Liberals rolled out a gun control bill this week that bars legal gun owners from selling, using, or even bequeathing guns they purchase legally, but are now banned. Sure, the government is offering to do a buyback inspired by New Zealand's Prime Minister Ardern, and like Ms. Ardern, Trudeau used a tragedy to ram this through the parliamentary process. Owners of the 1,500 so-called assault rifles that Trudeau banned with the stroke of a pen in May last year now have two options, sell them back to the government or hold on to them as little more than scrap metal, with it being a criminal offense to shoot, sell, or even transport one of these. We are now ensuring that uh, there is a buyback program so that uh, Canadians who lawfully purchase these weapons <clears throat> are treated fairly and respectfully and uh, now that they are uh, next to useless as weapons, are able uh, to uh, obtain fair compensation for that. Next to useless. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's still slightly more useful than Trudeau himself, but I digress. And what's this about buying back? How can the government buy something back that it never owned? Sounds a fair bit like confiscation to me, but oh no, it couldn't be. Here's Justin Trudeau in 2010. The fear in here is that the first step towards registering your guns is, is just the first step towards taking away guns from everyone. That's never going to happen because here in Canada, we have a culture that has that has grown up with guns and that respects the need to, to go out into the wilderness and shoot things from time to time. Yeah, how dare those folks be afraid the Liberals were going to take away guns. But, I mean, it isn't just guns the Liberals are after, even things that look like guns. Oh yes, this legislation bans, and I'm quoting here, any device that is designed or intended to exactly resemble, or to resemble with near precision, a firearm. So if you've got some Colt 1911 paperweight, well, that's going to be banned as well now. So the fake Prime Minister is criminalizing fake guns. I guess it's then also no surprise that most of the models the Liberals banned were black guns, but at least these ones don't do a rousing chorus of the Banana Boat song. And hey, Mark, I'm not sure if you're looking for a new gig or not, but I know there's a job posting in Canada made just for you. The Ontario Human Rights Commission is hiring a new Chief Human Rights Commissioner. Full-time with great benefits, though you might need to negotiate a deferred start date if you go for it, as we near the one-year anniversary of the Canada-U.S. border closing down. Back to you. Well, you know, Andrew, I might apply for that, given that there seems to be no rush to make me Governor-General. The phone on my desk hasn't stopped not ringing. I'm always interested in the way gun bans uh, get extended to bans on things that look like guns. And just to forestall all the yank gloating at wimpy Canucks, uh, the United States has considerable form in that regard. One thinks of the TSA seizing a kid's two-inch plastic soldier, confiscating the half-inch plastic rifle in his plastic hand, and then handing the disarmed plastic GI back to the kid. Or the Pennsylvania school that went into total lockdown because I think it was a second grader nibbled his Pop-Tart into what was taken to be the shape of a pistol. When the Chinese invade, let's all wave Pop-Tarts at them and see if they flee in terror. Thank you, Andrew. See you next time. Keep up to date with the past on the 100 Years Ago Show with Mark Stein. A Prime Minister on the run, a stroll across Australia. 
and a self-appendectomy. It's February 1921. The U.S. State Department has now withdrawn from the Allied Reparations Committee. In a further rebuff to the Allies, the Argentine has announced that it will not recognize the strictures of Versailles and will continue to purchase and import German war materials. Meanwhile, France is reported to have entered an alliance with Poland and agreed to support the Poles in the current Polish-Soviet war. Following the Revolutionary Committee of Georgia's appeal to Moscow, the 11th Army of Soviet Russia has crossed into Georgia from Armenia and Azerbaijan and is marching to the capital at Tbilisi to support Georgian Bolsheviks in their uprising against Georgian Mensheviks. The Prime Minister and other prominent Mensheviks are said to have fled Tbilisi for Batumi. In Armenia, the current anti-Bolshevik revolt is turning very bloody. Following a massacre of Armenian Bolsheviks, the military commander of the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, Hamazasp, has been brutally hacked to death in a revenge attack. Persians are in the market for a new Prime Minister. Fatola Khan Akbar has been overthrown in a coup d'etat by General Reza Khan and journalist Ziauddin Tabatabai. The Shah remains on his throne, although what His Majesty makes of the sudden removal of Prime Minister Khan Akbar is not known. Britain's recently retired Secretary of State for the Colonies, Viscount Milner, has presented to both Houses of Parliament the findings of his Committee on Egypt. Lord Milner recommends that the British Protectorate be given self-government without delay. Self-government for Ireland is proving more of a challenge, even something as routine as a short railway journey on the Cork to Bandon line is now fraught with peril. As the train pulled in to the small halt at Upton and Inishannon, Irish revolutionaries from Sinn Féin raked every carriage with gunfire, killing two travelling salesmen initially, rather than their real target, the soldiers in the first and last compartments. The soldiers from the Essex Regiment then fired back. By the end of the exchange, ten minutes later, eight passengers were dead and another ten wounded. One Sinn Féiner was found dead at the scene and another too close by.
is the easy part, putting the cork back in is trickier as the Republicans ambush the government forces, the government forces ambush the Republicans. East of Cork, near Middleton, the Royal Irish Constabulary and the army cornered Sinn Féiners in a farmhouse and killed a dozen of them. Two RIC officers were fatally shot by the revolutionaries. The Republicans are reported to be killing suspected informers. In the United States, a Negro in Georgia, John Lee Eberhardt, was accused of murdering his employer, Ida Lee, and turned himself in to the authorities. Then a mob, 3,000 strong from four Georgia counties, broke into the jailhouse at Athens in Clark County, seized Mr. Eberhardt and returned him to the scene of the crime. There they lynched him, burning him at the stake. Emigration to America from the nations of Central Europe has been halted because of the typhus epidemic. On what would have been her 101st birthday, a statue of women's suffragist Susan B. Anthony, along with those of her comrades Lucretia Mott and Elizabeth Cady Stanton, has been unveiled in the rotunda of the United States Capitol to honour the ladies' victory in a hard-fought cause, the extension of the franchise to women. The New Mexico Mounted Police have been the only statewide law enforcement since New Mexico's territorial days and have proved quite effective ever since the famous raid upon the state by Pancho Villa and his men. However, there has always been an element in state government that has wished to be rid of these southern mounties, and they have now achieved the agency's abolition. There are now none but local police departments in New Mexico. In sports news, 3,000 spectators flocked to Lake Placid, New York, to watch the first ever ski jump competition in the United States, it was won by Anthony Mora. Another sporting first, the first ever game of a new North American ice hockey league for ladies has taken place in Vancouver. The home team, the Vancouver Amazons, beat the Seattle Vamps 5 to nothing. The league's other team are the Victoria Cupies. We like these team names. Over the hill to Ardentini, just to see my pony teeny, just to get one or smile, I would walk a hundred miles. Over the hill to Ardentini, just to see my pony teeny, just to get one or smile. I would walk a hundred miles. <laughs> okay, you'd walk a hundred miles, but how about two and a half thousand miles? On November the 24th last year, Herbert Charles Cull walked out of his job at the Bunbury Herald 
and set off eastward out of Fremantle on the coast of Western Australia. Ninety days later, he walked into Sydney, New South Wales, to become the first man ever to walk across Australia solo. Somewhere along the track, he decided to give himself a new name, Aidan de Brune. While admiring his feet as a pioneering pedestrian, Bunbury Herald readers are still wondering what happened to the concluding instalments of his serial, The Mystery of the Nine Stars, which he left unfinished when he decided to go walkabout. Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane has long wanted to demonstrate that an appendectomy can be performed without putting the patient to sleep with a general anaesthetic. So he gathered various gentlemen of the press and observers from the medical community, gave himself merely a local anaesthetic and performed the surgery on himself, cutting into his body, removing his appendix, applying the sutures and stitching up his own incision. Dr. Kane is an enthusiastic performer of self-surgery. Two years ago, he amputated his own finger, but the self-appendectomy is regarded as his most ambitious operation yet. Rafael Reyes co-founded the Reyes Brothers Company with three of his siblings, and for a while they prospered, exporting quinine from Colombia's Putumayo River and from deep in the forests of the Amazon to Europe for use in malaria treatment. And then the business faltered. Brother Elias died of heart failure, brother Enrique died of the yellow fever, and brother Nestor was eaten by the cannibals of the Witoto tribe. So there were insufficient brothers for a company called the Race Brothers. Rafael Race joined the Colombian army, was quickly recognized for his courage and promoted to general, and eventually became president of Colombia surviving a merely metaphorical tribe of predatory cannibals in Colombian politics. Dead at the age of 71, the great survivor of his family, Rafael Reis. And that's the way of the world, February 1921. A hundred years from today, a hundred years from today. Can't get enough of America's undocumented anchorman? SteinOnline.com is your one-stop shop for all things Stein. Catch new episodes of The Mark Stein Show. Sit back and experience features like Stein's Song of the Week and Mark Stein's Tales for Our Time. Get the most of Stein Online by joining the Mark Stein Club, a global community of people just like you. The show never stops for members of the Mark Stein Club. Head on over to SteinOnline.com club for details. Mark's Mailbox is on the air. The first decision you make about any news story is, what is the story? Uh, So I'll give you two very topical examples today. First from Nicholas Strathy, a first-month member of the Mark Stein Club from Washington. Nicholas writes, Mark, I am a bit puzzled by the apparent implicit support for COVID mRNA vaccines by many apparently thoughtful people, including yourself, as you today excoriated lousy, inefficient vaccine distribution policies in places like New York, as though administering those vaccines to as many as possible as quickly as possible would obviously be a good idea. 
Why should anyone be eager to take an experimental biological agent with high incidence of bad side effects whose long-term effects cannot be known for years, with no liability for the manufacturer, to possibly prevent catching a disease that is so rarely life-threatening? Well, Nicholas, to the first part, um, I am rather amused at the almost total inversion of Trump-Democrat positions on this issue. Just a few months back, Kamala Harris and other big-shot Dems were saying, I ain't taking no vaccine cooked up by that crazy Trump in his Oval Office. Well, the vaccine arrived at warp speed, as promised, and now Trump supporters have taken against the Trump vaccine. But that's not the story. Anyone's free to take the vaccine or to not take it. Um, The story is that Cuomo and other Democrat governors blew the distribution of it with a stupid micro-hierarchy of recipients apparently modelled on American airline priority flight boarding. As I've had cause to observe before, if you're at an Australian airport, the lady over the tannoy just says, OK, if you're going to Brisbane, you better get on now because we're going to leave. And everyone piles on and five minutes later, the plane takes off at an American airport. No matter how many frequent flyer miles you have, you're screwed. Oh, you're one of our gold members. I'm afraid you have to wait until after our platinum members are boarded. Oh, you're platinum. I'm afraid you have to wait until after mega platinum. Oh, you're a member of our mega premium platinum prestige priority super duper club. Well, you still have to wait until mega premium platinum prestige priority super duper bonus plus whoop-de-doo club members traveling with unaccompanied Miners with childhood diabetes and wearing National Guard uniforms are boarded. And it takes an hour to get everyone on and to take off. That's the vaccine distribution system in New York. So you wind up with vaccine doses being thrown away. And this is the story. You wind up with old people with uh, specific vaccine appointments waiting in line for hours on icy, frigid New York sidewalks and still failing to get their doses because the uh, the vaccine administration clinic closes at 5 p.m. or whatever and they all go home. So it's a story about government incompetence. At a time when the government says you're not competent to run your diner, your gym, your hair salon, the government itself is incapable of running public health. When public health is the rationale for the biggest power grab of our lifetimes, the one that prevents you opening up your diner or your gym. Whether or not you want the shot is on you, but if you want the shot and you can't get it, that's on Cuomo. As to the second part of Nicholas's question, why should anyone be eager to take an experimental biological agent with high incidence of bad side effects whose long-term effects cannot be known for years with no liability for the manufacturer to possibly prevent catching a disease that is so rarely life-threatening? Uh, Well, I'll give you my reason. I haven't had a shot, but I was planning on getting one because I'm a bit tired of living in what's basically an open prison. And I've read for months that the only possibility of reopening international travel is these vaccine passports, as they called them. They've uh, they've quietly dropped that phrase now. And if you go on various government websites, uh, as I have... Uh, because it takes four or five stages to get where I was hoping to go in order to see friends and family. I won't go into the uh, 
the the operational planning that enabled me to see my dear friend Kathy Shadle before she died. But I have noticed that if you go on those government websites where where once their officials were talking about vaccine passports, I now notice that certain countries are already beginning to say they don't recognize vaccine certificates. So, so much for that. So my interest in vaccines was as a way of ending restrictions on freedom of movement, which has become uh, very depressing to me and, uh, and actually injurious to my work, including my commentary here and elsewhere. It turns out that they were just just yanking our chain on that. But either way, the issue is the state has subordinated everything to the goals of its public health commissars, and its public health commissars are total crap. On a similar note, Tina Trent, a Georgia member of the Mark Stein Club, writes with regard to my conversation on Tucker the other night with Glenn Greenwald about Officer Sicknick, a man who died not during the Capitol riot, but the following day, and for whom there is still no official cause of death. There's been a lying of state in the rotunda, and there has been a cremation but there remains no official cause of death, which in a functioning society would be odd. Tina Trent says, Respectfully, contact Officer Down, the DC Police Union and the Police Benevolent Society if you want to get real official statements about Officer Sicknick. Police are attacked relentlessly from above and below. They can't trust their politicised command leadership, which is hard left, if not openly anti-cop, in all major cities from D.C. to Atlanta to Miami to San Francisco to St. Louis to Memphis to Detroit to Philly to Boston to Chicago to L.A. to NYC and so on. They can't trust the media to tell the truth about their lives or their deaths. They can't trust Democrats who universally demonize them. They can't trust the very substantial and shameful part of our movements, the dolt libertarians and leftitarians and far too many of the so-called oath keepers who whine endlessly about imaginary police abuses that are, if they exist at all, actually abuses by police brass, lying politicians and anti-cop coke scum paid off by Cato, AFP, Freedom Works, and so on, including every Conservatism Inc. outlet recently given cash to whine about police unions as if they haven't been a largely conservative and unique institution for protecting police from leftists for decades now. Nor does Glenn Greenwald, previously of the virulently anti-police salon, where he happily regularly crapped on cops, have enough authority to be discussing these issues, given his former systematically misplaced abuse of police, though in his case, because he is honest, if he is willing to actually denounce his former ignorance of who really set the policies he whines about endlessly, I welcome him as a convert to the right side of this issue in particular. Well, Tina, for me, um, and uh, other people are entitled to find aspects of this story that tickle their fancy, but for me, the fact that Officer Sicknick is a policeman isn't the issue here. It doesn't matter whether he was a policeman or a waitress or an abortionist or a transgender supermodel. Because since he died on January the 7th, he's been a Democrat prop, a very useful one. But that's all he's been, a Democrat prop, to the point where the real Officer Sicknick, whoever he was, 
has basically been extinguished uh, in order to preserve the Democrats' narrative. And so, no, I don't want to get what you call, quote, real official statements from police benevolent societies, because I'm still waiting for a, quote, real official statement from the District of Columbia pathologist with an official cause of death. The pathology lab knows the official cause of death, but they're not telling us because they've been told not to tell us. And they've been told not to tell us because the official cause of death would completely undermine the Democrat narrative that this poor man was bludgeoned to death with a fire extinguisher by Trumpers. Instead of dying the following day uh, from something that may be due to his own health issues or something entirely unrelated to the capital uh, so-called insurrection at all. So we we don't have that official cause of death because we now have a politicized city morgue that will never tell the truth about Officer Sicknick because the truth is not politically helpful. That is, that is Banana Republic 101. It doesn't matter whether Officer Sicknick was a good cop or bad cop or a cop at all. What matters is in, that in the capital city, of a dying superpower, the bureaucracy in cahoots with Nancy Pelosi and the rest of the gang is lying to us in order uh, to achieve its political objectives over the reality of Officer Sicknick's death. That's the story. And if you want to know why uh, Glenn Greenwald was on Tucker talking to me about it, it's because most of the butcher-than-thou A-listers on the right don't want to go anywhere near it. Mark Stein's Last Call Clark was the man who put the orchestra in the electric light orchestra. He did all their string and choral arrangements on hits like Mr. Blue Sky and Living Thing. Back in the 60s, young Louis joined the Raymond Froggart Band as the bass guitarist, and he discovered that as much as he liked playing bass guitar, he really liked doing the string arrangements they put on pop records back then, and that's how it all started. There was a period in my life when I used to get a hundred cassettes a month of unproduced musicals that people were trying to get put on. And one of them that had been doing the rounds for years was a certain Shakespeare musical uh, that, to the best of my knowledge, has never been staged anywhere in the world in all these years. But it did get Louis Clark a job with the Electric Light Orchestra. It was actually... Raymond Froggart's idea, who mm. was bandizing for six years. And he had this um, idea to do a musical about the life of William Shakespeare. Mm. And uh, he sort of demoed the songs with a guitar. And he asked me if I could put it together for him properly, you know, so we could make a, a proper tape using yes. an orchestra and, and uh, sort of singers, the, the sort of singers you'd get in a musical show. And we actually did uh, put it down on tape. But unfortunately, nobody ever really got interested in it. And <laughs> so that's, that's a bit of a shame. It is, but the funny thing about all of that, while we were recording those sessions, we were in a studio in Wembley, and uh, Jeff Lynne was in uh, the same building in the next studio, putting down the backing tracks to El Dorado, mm. 
and because we knew each other from the old group days right around Birmingham, mm. uh, he was having a break and he popped in to say hello and was having a listen. And um, the next day he called me and asked me if I'd be interested in working on the El Dorado album, which was the album they were yes. doing then. Uh, because prior to then, on the uh, ELO albums, they'd just used the uh, string section which they had, which was two cellos mm. and a violin, and uh, multi-tracked them mm. to make it sound big. And um, he asked me if I'd be interested in working on him using a proper full string section, which I did, and uh, I've been involved ever since. And we're starting on a new album next month. And mm. I love working with ELO. Mm. It's probably the only band I'd want to work with. Light Orchestra with string and choral arrangements by Louis Clark. I was in Germany um, a couple of years back and saw ELO were in town, so I went along. Not sure how many of the original band were on stage that night, but Louis was there playing keyboards. The other great orchestra in his recording career was the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, uh, founded by the great conductor Sir Thomas Beecham. And in the early 80s, Louis Clark found himself the inheritor of Sir Thomas's baton when someone came up with the idea of classical disco. Well, it wasn't my idea. It was uh, Don Reedman's idea, who was mm. one of the uh, producers of the record. And it was in the days when we all went uh, crazy over these meddlers with the disco backing, yes. um, which was started over here by the uh, Stars on 45. Mm. And uh, Don thought it might be an idea to try a classical medley. And originally, the original intention was to do it with synthesizers or something like mm. that. But we thought it'd be much better to make it more authentic and get the full might of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. <laughs> and uh, we just uh, squeezed the single in uh, at the end of a session, which was something completely different. <laughs> but it was so uh, immediately uh, appealing. Mm. Uh, you know, it, you could tell straight away it was going to work. Mm. And... Uh, from there on, it went on to the album. How did how did the members of the orchestra react? Because presumably they're used to uh, more uh, conventional conductors and more conventional concerts and recording. They loved it. Did uh, they? Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, for instance, at the end of the uh, 
last session of the first album. Mm. Uh, the single was out and in the charts by then, and we put a single on everybody's music stand. Yes. And uh, at the end of the session, about half the orchestra came up and asked me to sign their single. <laughs> so I, I just, I, I mean, I'm just thinking of maybe what uh, Sir Thomas Beecham would think uh, 20 years afterwards if he could have seen his boys uh, recording a, a disco hit, as it were. Well, it's got uh, his boys out of the financial mess they were in. <laughs> yes, I suppose. Uh, um, I find that most musicians have no sort of prejudice whatsoever. Mm. Um, they just enjoy playing music. Yes. Um, I'm sure there are people that think that, but uh, I've not met any yet. But I, I, I wonder, because occasionally I would have thought, imagine critics, music critics on Gramophone magazine, uh, would have thought would have raised an eyebrow or two. Well, too, they can if they want. They're not mm. forced to listen to it. They can still... Mm. Uh, I mean, people say I've destroyed the classics, but I haven't. They're still available for anybody. This mm. opens it up to other people. Mm. Or uses all this music that was written in the past and a new sort of person that would never... I've heard it in the first place, is listening to it. And as I said earlier, if they're getting some sort of enjoyment out of it, hmm. there's nothing wrong with that.
Number two in the United Kingdom in 1981 for Louis Clark and the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Some of the world's finest musicians playing with the soloist of the era, the decidedly uh, <laughs> non-flesh uh, and blood claptrap. But as you say, it's not got the, uh, the claptrap <laughs> yes. Driving you mad. <laughs> I mean, uh, we had disco before the claptrap got invented, mm. yeah. and then everybody went mad, and everybody's uh, had enough of it now. Yeah, so you've. I've had enough of it. <laughs> you ought to try working with it. <laughs> yeah, if you think these rock stars are temperamental, try working with the disco claptrap. Hope you enjoyed hearing Louis and me from the. Uh, Stein Online Archives. Did you spot all those tunes? Uh, Tchaikovsky's um, Piano Concerto Number no. 1, Rimsky-Korsakov, Flight of the Bumblebee, Mozart's 40th, uh, Gershwin, Rhapsody in Blue, Sibelius, the Karelia Suite, Beethoven's 5th, uh, Bach, uh, Toccata in D, Mozart, Einer Kleiner Nacht Music, uh, Beethoven, Ode to Joy, Rossini, uh, the William Tell Overture, Mozart again, Marriage of Figaro, Tchaikovsky again, Romeo and Juliet, Jeremiah Clark's Trumpet Voluntary, Handel, uh, the Hallelujah Chorus, Grieg's Piano Concerto, uh, Bizet, uh, March of the Toreadors from Carmen, and uh, Tchaikovsky again, the 1812 Overture. That's incredible when you think about it. You bring Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Grieg, Bizet, Rossini, Tchaikovsky, and the rest of the gang to collaborate on a single, and they can only get to number two. Dead at the age of 73, the man who made Handel play to a claptrap, Louis Clark. That will do it for today's show. Please join me on Monday for a very special edition of the Rush Limbaugh Show with Mrs. Rush Limbaugh, his beloved Catherine. Monday at noon, North American Eastern Time. That's 5 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. All rights reserved.